0: That video we just watched is so true, isn't it? That sometimes as little kids, we start off with these big dreams of conquering the world and all this we're gonna do. And then somewhere along the way, as we grow up, our dreams just tend to shift to safety and security. But our God is this great dream giver. This God of hope causes us to dream big dreams. Dreams of reaching into every corner of our culture, every sphere of our society, wherever it is that we work, live, study, and play to see the power, the redemptive power of Jesus touch all of that. And you know, in our country, when we think of dreams and everything like that, we often tend to focus on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his iconic I Have a Dream speech. You know, that speech has inspired just countless Americans. It's been studied time and time again, both for its content and just the mastery in which it was delivered. And there's one line in that speech where Dr. King is looking at the world and the thing that frustrated him most about society was that there was a lack of justice the way that God would intend, that not all people were treated as image bearers of God. And so in that speech, he has this line, that I have a dream that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and that all people will witness it together. This is our hope. You see, hope really does dream Big dreams. But as we kind of continue in our study of Exodus, we're at that point where the Israelites have lost hope. I mean, their dreams at this point have just amounted to a better form of slavery, just having some straw. They've all but given up. And so, as God is is working on them, He's concentrating on Moses, this leader, and He's infusing Moses, who's having all these voices in his head telling him, hey, just get out of here, Moses, or Pharaoh telling Moses, I'm not listening to you. But then there's God's voice telling Moses, because I am, you are. Because I will, you can. Infusing this leader with hope, because hope dreams big dreams. I want you to see it this morning. We're going to be kind of in and out of scripture. And God is going to use the chapter 7 and 8 to really demonstrate to the Israelites that they can hope in him, that he is superior to everything going on in Egypt. I want you to see it. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. It reads, And the Lord said to Moses, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I and the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh remember at this point in the conversation, Moses is still having some doubts. He's still having doubts. Hey, the the Hebrews aren't listening to me. Why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? God, I'm not sure this whole plan is going to work. And so God pipes up again. He says, I am God. You are Moses. I will deliver my people out of Egypt. You can stand up to Pharaoh. Did you catch that here? I mean, God, he talks in the past tense about a future reality. Did you catch that? He says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. He he, he acts as if like that has already happened when it will happen in the future. See, God, when he speaks, he can talk about things as if they're already happened because his word is as good as done. You can always take him at his word. You can always trust him. When he says something, it's always true. And so he tells Moses this truth that hasn't happened yet, but he speaks to Moses as if it's already taken place. Then God says something interesting. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And that kind of stops us in our tracks, doesn't it? It kind of bothers us a little bit that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. I mean, why not soften Pharaoh's heart? Why not just make Pharaoh pliable and just do a greater work and and bring all the Egyptians to the knowledge and the relationship with him as well? It kind of bothers us that that God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In fact, our minds often, we race ahead in Scripture, don't we, to Jesus and that conversation that Peter has with him. You remember that conversation, don't you? Peter goes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus answers, Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, 490 times. And the point is, hey, you just keep on forgiving. No one's going to bother to count to 490. You just keep on forgiving. And then we look at that. We tend to give Peter a hard time, don't we? We say, Peter, come on, seven times? You're talking to God. It's got to be more than seven times. But in reality, I mean, we like to give Peter a hard time, but none of us would forgive somebody seven times, would we? I mean, that's just not the way the world tends to operate. We have this way of thinking, even the laws of the land. Three strikes, you're out. I mean, that's what we do. Hey, I, I will forgive you once. I will forgive you again, but you wronged me a third time. Well, that's about time to be done. We're going to change something. I mean, when's the last time that someone's come up to you and said, you know what? I've forgiven this person like seven times now. No, at that point, you're giving this counsel. Hey, it's time to be done with the relationship. It's time to move on. You need to separate yourself a little bit. Yeah, there's consequences to actions. And now it's time just to be done with the relationship. Seven times is too many. But Jesus tells Peter, no, not not seven times, but 70 times seven. You keep forgiving. You might change the way you act, but you keep forgiving. You don't give up on the relationship. So how is it here that God is saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart because we have this expectation that God isn't supposed to be like us. I mean, if he's going to say 490 times, he's going to just keep on, keep on forgiving. And yet he says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And we wonder if God will harden Pharaoh's heart, would he ever do that to me? Because we know ourselves, we, we know where we fall short. We know that we've done things we said we'd never do. We thought things we thought we'd never think. We, we know how we've fallen short. And so we wonder if God would do that to Pharaoh would he do that to me? Would he do that to my loved one who's just kind of fallen away and drifted away and said all these nasty things, terrible things? Would God just harden their heart as well if he would do it to Pharaoh? Here's the thing you need to understand about God in this passage. That word harden in the Hebrew, it means to twist, literally to wring out So the point that God is making is I'm going to wring out of Pharaoh's heart what is already inside of him. In fact, later it's going to say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh did this, Pharaoh did that. His heart, what is already in Pharaoh's heart, God's just going to wring it out. He's going to to bring it to light. It's going to surface. And what's going to surface is this continual stubbornness, pride, and rebellion. God is going to ring it out over and over and over again and out from Pharaoh's heart is going to demonstrate stubbornness, pride, and rebellion time and time again. But as he's doing this in Pharaoh's heart, he's also going to be working in the hearts of the Hebrews. And remember, in our impact group last week, we kind of had this discussion, what would the Hebrews have been thinking at this time? Because you must remember, it's been roughly 350 years from the death of Joseph to the birth of Moses, okay? So it's a long time, and in that time, a lot has happened. Yes, the Hebrews grew in number, but now there's all this brutality. Now they're in slavery, and they've been in slavery now for some time. And as they've been in slavery for this time, and they're looking around, and life is hard, They're constantly seeing how great things are for the Egyptians, and they're living in this polytheistic culture where they're always hearing about how great their gods are and how their gods are protecting them, and their gods are doing this. And the God of the Hebrews, well, I mean, they got some neat stories that they could tell about things in the past, but it's been a long time since any of that's taken place, and so you can imagine that by this point, their their faith has got to be really small, that maybe the Egyptians, those gods, they seem a little bigger the God they serve. And so God, he's going to use a series of plagues to open up the eyes of the Hebrews to awaken them so that they can hope again, so that they can dream again, because hope dreams big dreams. Let's, let's jump into the first plague. I want you to see it. We're going to be in Exodus 7, 14 through 19. We're going to look at the first four plagues together this morning. Exodus seven fourteen through 19, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hearted. He refuses to let his people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. So every single plague, it's a direct challenge to different Egyptian gods. See we've unearthed so much of ancient Egypt and discovered so much about their culture that now we understand that every single plague God was doing well it had a direct purpose and it was to challenge each of these different Egyptian gods and to show the Hebrew people and the Egyptian people that God is superior to all of the false gods of Egypt. And this first plague it challenges the Egyptian god Osiris. Now Osiris, this god, is symbolized by a triangle with an eye at the top. In fact, we had the very symbol for this Egyptian god on all of our money. It's on every single American one dollar bill. You turn to the back of that American one dollar bill and you will see this pyramid with an eye on top. It's the symbol of this false god, Osiris, and it's on all our money. And see, the point of that symbol is to demonstrate that Osiris is supposedly this all-seeing, all-powerful God. So powerful that Osiris is supposed to be able to turn death into life. And so here God comes and he challenges this God, Osiris, by this plague, because he takes the very essence of life, water. And he turns all of the water in Egypt into blood, all the rivers, all the ponds, all the canals, anything that holds water, the Nile, everything, it's turned to blood. And what's Osiris going to do about it? God takes life and turns it into death, but supposedly this life-giving God, he can't do anything about it. Now, you would think that this would wake Pharaoh up, but God allows Pharaoh's sorcerers to almost replicate and counterfeit this miracle. And so Pharaoh, his heart is hardened and he's not going along with anything. He says, I don't care. My, my sorcerers can do the same thing that your God is doing. I'm not letting your people go. And so this is going to bring us in to the second plague in Exodus chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. It reads this, "'Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Go into Pharaoh and say to him, "'Thus says the Lord, "'Let my people go that they may serve me.'" But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frog shall come upon you and all your people and on all your servants. (laughs) Now, the Egyptians, they had a key goddess. This goddess was named Hekka. Hekka was this goddess and she was pictured as having a body of a woman and then the head of a frog. Not, not a very attractive goddess, but this is the goddess, okay? And Heka was supposed to be this goddess of fertility. All right. And so because she was so honored and frogs were thought to bring fertility, that's why that the the princess was bathing in, in the river there at this section of the Nile, because there's frogs there. The fertility gods would bless her. Okay. Well, anyway, because frogs do this and they carry that, they were honored, they were revered in this culture. So much so that you could not just kind of brush a frog away, you could could not move a frog away, you could not pick him up and set him somewhere else. No, you had to revere the frogs, you had to let the frogs do and go what the frogs wanted to do, where they wanted to go. You certainly could not kill a frog, that would be terrible. So you can imagine, can't you, this dreadful scene that's taking place, just frogs everywhere. you got a woman standing, kneading bread in a bowl, trying to get things together, and then plop, this frog just kind of jumps right in, and she can't push him along. She can't scoop him out. She just has to wait and let him sit there as long as he wants to. A man and a woman, they get into bed at the end of the day. They get under the sheets, And the next thing they know, they hear a croak. Something jumps, and there's this slimy thing next to them. That frog jumps, they jump too. But the frog has claimed the bed. They can't just shoo the frog out of the bed. They They can't do that. If that's where the frog wants to sleep, well, then they have a choice. They're either sleeping with the frogs or they're moving somewhere else. But this is what's happening in Egypt. Frogs are infesting everything And the people have no recourse because this is a God, they believe, a goddess that they must honor if things are going to be fertile. So here is God and he challenges this fertility. He says, look, I'm going to make frogs so fertile. They're going to produce like crazy. But what benefit is it going to be to you? How How is your goddess Heka going to use this for anything good? It's not going to become good at all. It's just going to become an annoyance. It's not really any pain involved with this plague, but it is a constant annoyance because frogs are everywhere. And again, this time, God allows the sorcerers to counterfeit, to replicate this plague, this this miracle. And so they somehow produce some frogs in front of Pharaoh. But this time, Pharaoh's had enough. He just can't stand all these frogs. And so he calls Moses and Aaron and he says, hey, can you just get your God to get rid of these frogs? And if they, if he'll get rid of these frogs, then I will let your people go. They can go. They can worship your God. And so God honors that, he does. He has the frog just kind of croak away and die off. But Pharaoh, after everything's kind of calmed down, he goes back on his word. His heart is continuing to be hardened. He is continuing to wring out stubbornness, pride, and rebellion. So the third plague would come. I want you to see this one, Exodus chapter eight, verse 16, it reads this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. The Egyptian god confronted by this plague is the god Geb. The god Geb, he he was the earth god, the god of the land. So the land was honored in Egypt because of this god. And they saw this god as the one who, who gives them fruit and fiber, gives them the nourishment for life. And now all of this nourishment, all of this land that they so cherish and they so honor because of the god Geb, well, now it's all turning to gnats. I mean, these gnats just swarm and infest the land. Uh, Experts, they tell us that these gnats, they, they were little insects that would burrow into the nostrils and into the ears of both humans and animals, and that they would bite in there just like little pinches all the time, and it would sting, and it would hurt, it would be this constant pain, this constant annoyance. I mean, you can imagine always trying to brush these gnats out of your ears, out of your nose. I mean, it's a terrible thing. It's just a terrible thing to think about, but this is happening, and it must have been truly horrible. And this time, Pharaoh sorcerers, they couldn't replicate this miracle. God does not allow them to counterfeit this miracle. And so these polytheistic sorcerers, they say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, God's finger is on this. The one true God, his finger is on all this. But that's not enough for Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh's heart is still being hardened. It's still being wrung out. And so all of this pride, all of this stubbornness, all of this rebellion continues to come out. And so he's not going to change. He's going to stick to his course. Now, it's important to note that up to this point, these first three plagues, the Israelites had to suffer right along with the Egyptians. These plagues, they didn't just harm the Egyptians No, the Israelites experienced it all too. I mean, they were right there when when their water supply just turned to blood and they had nothing to drink for seven days. I mean, they had frogs jumping into their beds too. Now they were allowed to kind of brush them off, but they had to deal with that annoyance. And they had to deal with all of those gnats burrowing into their ears and their nose and just swarming them wherever they went. They had to live with all of this pain and all of this suffering as well. Now, sometimes you have to wonder, don't you? If if Moses just ever wanted to throw in the towel. I mean, here he is, he's being obedient, he's doing what he's asked but nothing's getting better. In fact, things seem more miserable. Now you have a Pharaoh who's upset, you have the slave masters who are brutalizing the people, and now it seems as if their own God has turned against them. I mean, you wonder with every croak of the frog, with every bite of the net, as if the people are just getting more and more fed up with Moses. I mean, you wonder what that interaction most m- must have been like. See, Understand this, that sometimes obeying God does not bring immediate relief. Sometimes obeying God does not bring immediate relief. You know, we have this understanding, this thinking sometimes, that we treat God almost as if he's like in some kind of elected position. That if we vote for God to be God of our lives, if we vote for him to be in charge, well, then he's going to make things good, and he's going to be this good God who always makes things easy and makes things nice and just makes a really smooth path for us. And if we vote against God and if we, if we don't vote for him by the way that we live, work, study, and play, well, then things become a little more difficult. Then the world kind of turns against us. Things become hard. See, sometimes we almost treat God as if he is this God of karma. But understand the scripture here. I mean, remember, for 350 years now, uh, Egypt is prospering. Now, they're not faithful to the one true God. They're polytheistic. Even those pharaohs from long ago that honored the Hebrew people, they're polytheistic. They're believing in false gods. And yet, this is the most powerful country in the world at the time. Their empire is strong. These are a flourishing people. It seems like they're getting ahead, but by their actions, they haven't voted for God at all. And here's Moses. He's having conversation after conversation after conversation, hard conversations with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's not listening. He's going back on his word. He's doing this. He's doing that. Things are not getting better. If anything, things are getting more miserable. See, understand obedience often makes life more difficult, not less Isn't that what God promises us? He doesn't promise us, hey, come to me, be in a relationship with me, then everything's easy. No, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, hey, if you come and you follow me, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to sometimes divide families because of your allegiance to me. I'm going to sometimes make it really hard. There's going to be crosses to bear because of your allegiance to me. People are going to hate you because of your allegiance to me. I'm going to put you at odds with your culture when your allegiance is with me. See, obedience to God often makes life more difficult, not less. But there's this truth at the same time, that even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of it almost seeming as if the world is turning against us because it is, that when we trust in him, all of these burdens and all of these cares of the world We are able to give them to God and somehow our burden becomes light, Jesus says. That somehow the weight of the world, the cares of the world, they seem momentary and light. That somehow the present circumstances are drowned out and there is this peace that passes even understanding. You can't even make sense of it, that there would be peace and there would be a calmness of heart. Because in the midst of a difficult world, when we really do trust in him, when we really are obedient, even though circumstances might not go our way, there is peace, there's calmness, there's hope, and hope dreams big dreams. You know, maybe you can empathize with Moses here, maybe you kind of know a little bit of what he's feeling, because you've tried to have hard conversations with people. You've tried to share Jesus and impact people. You've tried to be this disciple maker where you intentionally invest in other people and show them what it looks like to to know Jesus and to live according to the truths of scripture and then to be able to invest in others. But then you look back and you feel like, I'm not getting anywhere. I mean, at this point, Moses has been faithful. He's done what God has asked him to do. He's continually gone back to Pharaoh with message after message. And every time, Pharaoh's hard heart is just continually to wring out all of this stubbornness, all of this pride, all of this rebellion. It seems as if he's getting nowhere. But see, understand, the basic motivation, the foundation from which Moses served God and the foundation from which that we serve God is not results. It is to glorify and to honor God. That's it. I mean, the reason why we live different from the world is not simply so that the world will change. It's to glorify and honor God. Now, do we want people to come into a relationship with Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Do we want to see disciple makers made who are able to disciple others? Yes, 100%. Do we want to see lives changed? We want to see families restored. Do we want to see peace and restoration where there was once hurt and brokenness yes absolutely but the superseding motivation behind all of that is not simply those results it's to see our god glorified and honored see the underlying motivation for life when lived properly is to glorify and honor god in everything that we do. Wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play, that's the motivation to honor and glorify God. Well, all of this brings us to the fourth plague. You'll see it in Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 24, and it reads this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh, As he goes out to the water, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. This plague of flies, it challenges the god of the Egyptians known as Beelzebub. Now, I know when we hear that name Beelzebub, we refer to it and think of Satan. And it's true, this is a name for Satan, but not so much for the Egyptians. For the Egyptians, this was the name of one of their gods, Beelzebub. He was the god of the flies, literally the lord of the flies. And so they believed that Beelzebub had the power to restrain these flies from coming and attacking them, that he was this god of of preservation and protection from these flies, these Flies were literally the dog fly. They were were big flies that came and they would bite you and it it would pack a serious punch, a serious sting. It would hurt. These, These were a terrible pest. And the Egyptians believed that if we worshiped Beelzebub, he will protect us from this pest, that this is the kind of God that he is. And so here, the one true God sends these flies and the Lord of the flies, Beelzebub, he's powerless to do anything about it. They come, they bite, and it doesn't matter how much they worship, they are there. Because the one true God is powerful over all of this. But with this plague, different from the first three, the Hebrews aren't affected. The land that the Pharaoh has allowed the the Hebrews to live in is the land of Goshen. It's this territory in Egypt. And this territory is set apart. God has put this divider in place so that the flies know, hey, they're not coming in there. See, God is protecting his people. The Egyptians think that Beelzebub can protect them from the flies. And here, the one true God says, no, I'm, I'm the God of everything. I don't need someone to look after this and someone to look after that and someone to look after that. I'm the God over it all. All these other gods, they're all false gods. See, this is what God was communicating to the Hebrews. Yeah, the Hebrews, they had to suffer through the first three plagues. But God is showing them that, hey, in the good times and in the bad, I am Lord. I am Lord in your slavery, and I am going to be Lord in your freedom. I am sovereign over everything. You can trust me with your lives. In fact, there is no other place you can run to, to trust for protection. You can't run to the Egyptian gods. Look how powerless they are. They can do nothing. Why? They're all false gods. I am the one who stands as sovereign. So you trust me as your protector, and I will continue to protect you. And God does. He protects them from all the future plagues. None of the future plagues will touch the people of of Israel, will touch the Israelites. And so God is moving. He's moving to get the Hebrews to hope again because hope dreams big dreams. When everything else just turns up empty, we hope in God alone. See, every other hope is a false hope. Every other hope will leave us empty. We hope in God alone. And when we hope in God alone, well, we dream big dreams because God is the giver of dreams. When we lose dreams, we when we tend not to dream anymore, it's because we tend not to trust anymore. We trust in ourselves, we look at our circumstances, we kind of move past all, all of that. When we focus on God, we begin to dream big dreams. We dream dreams of of freedom of liberation, of the impossible. I wonder this morning, as we kind of look in the mirror of Scripture, who is it that best represents you? Who is it that best represents me? Is it Pharaoh, who has just wrung out of his heart all of this stubbornness, all of this pride, all of this rebellion? Or is it Moses, someone who, despite not getting immediate results, despite not getting immediate relief, he continues to obey, he continues to serve. Why? Because hope dreams big dreams. Heavenly Father, forgive us for when we stop dreaming. God, help us to dream again, to dream the impossible, to not take on the cares of the world, but God, for our hearts to be in tune with you, to hear your voice, so that we can believe the impossible, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. God, focus our hearts and our minds on you this week. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.